Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. As we shift gears a bit, the last uh, number of weeks we've been studying the book of Revelation. And to that book we will return and finish in a couple months uh, if the Lord does not return before uh, then. But uh, let's open up to Hebrews today as we uh, focus our time together over the next several weeks preparing to celebrate uh, life in Christ as we approach Holy Week and Easter together. But if you're uh, using a pew Bible, and certainly would encourage you to do so, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you today, you can find this text on page 967. Earlier we sang that familiar hymn, hymn Praise Him, Praise Him, Jesus, uh, our blessed Redeemer. And certainly we have gathered this morning to praise Him. We want to hear from Him. He is worthy of our praise, and He is uh, our Redeemer. As you find your place in the book of Hebrews, let me invite you uh, to join me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the chance now to open your word, to read your word, to hear your word. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through the preaching, through the proclamation of your word. May your spirit guide and confront and challenge and correct and conform and encourage us to follow after Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a small view of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews sets out to correct it, sets out to enlarge it, to expand it. You know, we don't know too much about the human author of uh, this letter. For unlike the other New Testament epistles, there's no self-identification. In fact, scholars have, deba- have debated, really, uh, since the, uh, the letter was written, uh, concerning who wrote it. And there's been no, um, there's been no consensus on uh, that Front, And so there's really no reason for us to speculate too much about it as long as as long as we recognize the spirit of God as its author. A reminder that the Bible contains God's truth through human personality. But in this case, we just don't know the identity of the human personality. But he writes with clarity. He writes with consistency and he writes with depth. He appears to write primarily to to a Hebrew or Jewish Christian audience. In other words, he assumes a certain familiarity with uh, the Scriptures, with the Old Testament. He assumes a familiarity with the Mosaic Law, meaning the whole temple and sacrificial and priestly system that regulated uh, God's relationship with His people for a time. And in many ways, this letter uh, is like a Christian sermon or a Christian commentary on that law now that Jesus Christ has come. Like a well-crafted essay, Hebrews presents a focus case on why Jesus is better. He is better. 
He's better than the law that preceded him and prepared for his coming. He's better than any human priest. He's better than any animal sacrifice. He's better than the angels. He's a better form of communication. He's a better way to know God because God is best seen in his son. God is best seen in his son. In other words, if you want to know God, then you need to get to know his son. You need to get to know Jesus Read about Jesus. Consume the words of Jesus. Take in the biblical witness concerning Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. If God is best seen in His Son, then all the other religions of the world have a false view of God because no other religion portrays God to be anything like Jesus. There's a movement today in the name of tolerance and Oftentimes, with good intentions, I think, to essentially suggest otherwise, to suggest that all religions do uh, lead back to a creator God, to the same creator God. But friends, anyone who takes the Bible seriously or any religion's sacred text seriously knows that pluralism doesn't hold up. All religions cannot be the same because not only does such a claim violate uh, the central teachings of every major religion, but a cursory examination uh, of Uh, Major religions reveals that they claim dramatically differing truths. Uh, Poor example, uh, but uh, I understand that uh, Purdue and Virginia played an exceptional basketball game last night. It was neck and neck. It came down uh, to the wire. But even though both teams played exceptionally, uh, only one of those teams was allowed to advance to the final four. You see, when it comes to worldview, when it comes to uh, religion, they aren't all right. And, and in fact, nowhere does the contrast in belief appear more sharply than between Christianity and the others. And all the other major religions of the world, be it Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism or even Judaism, God or gods are perceived and proclaimed to be distant. Perceived and proclaimed to be detached Counting our good works and taking note of the bad ones. Religions of pursuing God's favor through a moral life, hoping to be accepted and rewarded by Him at the end of this life. Now friends, if that is your understanding of Christianity, then you have been misinformed. Because the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, recounts a story of redemption, of deliverance, of salvation, of God's rescue, a rescue that is carried out by God upon His people, not because of our good works, but because of His mercy. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You, you might respond and say, well, yes, of course, the New Testament teaches that. That becomes evident in the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? How were God's people saved prior to the arrival of Jesus to pay the price of our salvation and the penalty of our sin? The author of Hebrews says, essentially, in chapter 11 of this letter, that they were saved the same way we are. They were saved by God's grace through faith. Faith in God and His promises. They didn't know the rest of the story. They weren't privileged to live this side of the coming, the living, the dying, and the rising of Jesus Christ as we do. But they trusted God and His promises. And ultimately, it was the same blood that saves us that saved them. They were saved on credit, so to speak looking for the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption through a Messiah. And that Messiah, church, has now come. He has come and we know Him as Jesus Christ, God's Son. Hebrews begins by saying that 
even though they didn't know just how God's plan of spiritual salvation would unfold. God didn't leave them in the dark. God spoke. God doesn't leave us in the dark either. He has spoken. God has spoken. He is a God who speaks to us. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke. He spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. You see, no self-identification here, unlike the other epistles, but he immediately identifies the source of his message, God. God spoke. And now he says God has spoken again because God has spoken, the author writes. God spoke in the past or long ago. And he doesn't define the many times and in various ways, for he assumes his readers already know because they know the scriptures. He assumes that his readers know about the Lord's declaration in the garden, that there would be hostility, that there would be conflict between the offspring of the woman and the serpent or Satan, and that ultimately the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, would crush and defeat Satan. He assumes that his readers know about God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and that through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He assumes they know about the burning bush and God's call upon Moses. He assumes they know about the signs and the wonders sent to warn Pharaoh in Egypt. He assumes they know about the plagues declaring that Yahweh is greater, that he is superior to the gods of the Egyptians. You see, they know about the Ten Commandments and the various laws that teach that God is holy and must only be approached on his terms. They know about the rock, the water from the rock in the wilderness. They know about the manna from heaven that God rained down. They know about the quail that he provided in the desert. All testifying to the Lord's provision and his power and his trustworthiness. They know about God's promise through Nathan the prophet to David. That his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. They, they know about the Isaianic uh, prophecies concerning the Messiah. And about God delivering Shadrach and Meshach. And Abednego from the blazing furnace and about God delivering Daniel from the lion's den. You see, they know that God has spoken. And because God has spoken, we must listen to him. Listen to him. God has spoken. So let's be people who consume his word. Who consume his word that recounts who he is, what he's done, and how we can know him. God is best seen in Jesus. But in no way, shape, or form does the Bible dismiss what has been said prior to The coming of Jesus. You see, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, a text you may be familiar with. He he writes before the completion and compilation of the New Testament, referring to the Hebrew Scriptures, referring to our Old Testament. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all from Him. It's all God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And the author of Hebrews no doubt agrees with Paul. God has spoken. Thus we make every aim to listen to what he has to say. And we will not know him if we do not listen to his word. So we take in his word. We consume his his word. Church, we must never dismiss or diminish the word of, of God. This is why we read scripture every time we gather together. This is why David often begins our our time of worship with a call to worship from God's word. This is why we stand when we read a sermon text for the day as if to set that time apart because the Bible is God's word. This is how God speaks to us. God has spoken and so we listen to him. But even so, the author of Hebrews wants us to hear something more than that. He wants to tell us 
something significant, that something significant has now happened in these last days, meaning the time between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. And this is what it is. He wants us to know that God has spoken definitively and fully through his son. That God has spoken definitively and fully through his his son. Like the end of a popular TV series that's awaiting the start of a new season, Malachi leaves us leaves us hanging. He leaves us waiting and wanting more. He leaves us wanting the tension to be resolved. For more than 400 years, the biblical story is silent with God's people watching and waiting for his redemptive plan to be continued. But now, Hebrews says, in the arrival and the ministry and the mission and the message of the Son, the story continues. In other words, what God has now said by His Son belongs to what He already said through the prophets. There's continuity. The continuation of something already begun, for God is faithful and He does not change. And so friends, as we prepare to reflect on the cross, as we prepare to celebrate resurrection and life and forgiveness through Jesus this Easter season, we do so knowing that this too is a story to be continued. For the Son who made the universe and who came revealing the Father has left us His Spirit and He will soon return in power. But we're not waiting on another book. All those details are recounted right here in this book in the Bible. We're not waiting on a new and fuller revelation. There's no need for a Quran. There's no need for a companion to the Bible, a Book of Mormon. This is it. God has spoken definitively and fully through the Son, meaning finally, decisively, and clearly. God is best seen in His Son. Thus, Jesus is the greatest means of knowing God. Jesus is the greatest means of knowing God because He is God. And so to reject Jesus is to reject God. We couldn't ask for a better portrait. We couldn't ask for a better portrayal of who God is. And so what we remember and what we celebrate this time of year is not some side story. It is the story. It's the story of the God who redeems by coming to us and doing for us what we do not deserve and what we can never do for ourselves. The one who made us, the one to whom it all belongs, the one who came to us became one of us. And friends, He reflects God's glory. Jesus reflects God's glory. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Think of the sudden and piercing appearance of the dawn at sunrise. Brilliant rays of light bursting out of the sun and into the darkness. The rays of of the sun are like the rays of the sun, S-O-N, yet grossly different. For the sun is the personal appearing, the personal coming of the fullness of God's glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, he says, The sun is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, Jesus reflects God's glory, and he, re- he represents God completely. 
represents God completely. Hebrews says, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, the sun is not partially God or he's not simply some messenger sent from God. He comes bearing the very stamp of God, the same nature of God himself. Thus, he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so the deist idea that is popular in some circles today and certainly is some history, even in our own nation, the deist idea that God is like a watchmaker who makes an intricate watch and then just leaves it to run on its own mechanisms is not grounded in Scripture. In fact, it is heresy. It sounds good, but it's heresy. God is intricately involved in the ongoing, day-by-day, moment-by-moment maintenance and preservation of His creation. The Bible essentially says, if God is, so is the Son, so is Jesus. Friends, Jesus maintains the universe. This is why we worship Him. There's no one like Him. Sends apart and above. He holds all things together. And the Son, Colossians 1.18, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Jesus is supreme. He reflects God's glory. He represents God completely. And He redeems fallen humanity. He redeems us. He is our blessed Redeemer. The Son of God, verse 3, provided purification for sins. In other words, He came for a mission. He came to save. He came to rescue. He came to deliver. No mention yet in this letter of how the Son does this, but that the very One who sustains the universe comes near, comes here to purify sinners. How remarkable and yet how ironic. You're not going to find that message in any other religious system or belief. No one else is going to claim that the creator and the sustainer of all life is also the redeemer of life, much less a redeemer who stoops down and comes near and takes on human flesh and walks the dusty streets of Israel and carries his own Roman instrument of torture on his back up to a hill where he's crucified next to criminals. Yet this is what he did because this was the plan of God. God was pleased, Colossians 1.19, to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on a cross. Similarly, uh, Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and, and following. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mindset was that? Who being in very nature God, he, he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. From the nature of God to the nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. After this son. Our savior. After Jesus had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
Similarly, Paul says in a few more words, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and following, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he reigns eternally. Jesus reigns eternally. God is best seen in his son, Jesus, for he fulfills the mission of God as God. And so he's more than a human or angelic messenger. He reflects God's glory. He represents God completely. He redeems fallen humanity and he reigns eternally. Do you know him? Do you know this one? Who is unrivaled, who is unequaled, who is unmatched, who sustains the universe by his powerful word and yet came near, who stooped down to provide purification for your sins and my sins. Do you know him? If you know him, then you know God. But if you do not know him, if you do not know this Savior, then you do not know God. You are lost and in need of his saving grace. And friend, he stands ready and willing to redeem you, to cleanse you, to purify you, to forgive you your sins and grant you restoration with the Father and eternity in heaven. And so brother or sister, I don't know what you've been taught. But I'm learning that fewer and fewer folks, whether churched or not, really know this gospel. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The story that the one who made you sustains you and has come to save you. Do you know him? It's the story expressed throughout the Bible. The story that is most clearly seen in the coming of Jesus. The centerpiece and principal message of the scriptures. And so how do we know? How do we know that this Bible is ultimately about salvation through Jesus Christ? Because he tells us it is. Because he says so. Maybe you remember the story, you've heard the story of the resurrected Jesus. He's walking along the road to Emmaus and he encounters two on that road who are a bit distraught. They're down. They're discouraged because Jesus of Nazareth has been killed. And they were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah sent to redeem them. The resurrected Jesus comes alongside them and he listens to them describe what has happened. They don't recognize him. Finally, he's had enough and he must, uh, he must tell them. And so Luke chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that, what, the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The very same chapter, the same story goes on and Jesus appears to his disciples, his close friends, those who he had essentially lived with and ministered among alongside for three years. And he said to them, verse 44, this this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the Old Testament. Scriptures that were made available during that day. So based upon Jesus' own words, we must come to the Bible and read not simply with devotional lenses. Certainly there's a time, a place for that. We must not simply read with moralistic glasses or informational glasses, but we must come to God's Word and read Scripture with gospel glasses. We must read for the gospel. 
read for the central story of God's Word, looking and mining and searching for consistent renderings of God's holiness and His justice and His grace. For all throughout His His Word, all throughout the Bible, we see glimpses of God's sovereign plan and His saving character. It's there. But now we have seen it definitively, the author says. We've seen it fully. We've seen it finally through Jesus, the perfect prophet, the great high priest, and the eternal king. For the Son is a prophet through whom God speaks His final word to us. The Son is a priest who has removed the blot of sin from our ledger. And He is a king who is exalted by God to a supreme place of honor. This is who the Son is. Thus, this is who God is. For God is best seen in His Son. So what does this mean for us? How do we take this truth and how do we begin to let it permeate our lives and what we do? I think first it means read the Bible. Read God's Word. Consume His Word. Make it part of your daily routine to spend time with God and His Word. But don't simply read it. Let's not simply read it to check a box. Let's read it to know the God who redeems through His own Son. And when we hear a message, whether from the pulpit or in a small group setting from God's Word, let's not simply evaluate it based upon its entertainment value or other worldly markers of interest. Let's listen for gospel truth about the God who redeems through His own Son. Do you know the God who redeems? The God who knows you, the God who made you, the God who sustains you, and the God who redeems through Jesus Christ. You can know Him today. He can be the prophet who now speaks to you. He can be the priest who provided purification for your sins. He is the King whose reign and sure return should now encourage you and me to live for Him. But you must receive Him in faith. For it is by grace you've been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift that must be received. So friend, receive God's redeeming grace. Receive God's redeeming grace. Receive the gift. Friends, this is what Jesus came to provide. This is what He came to do. This is what He came to accomplish. This is what He came to offer to you and to me. He came to do this. He came to save, to redeem you. He came to pay the price of your salvation and the penalty of your sin in accordance with the perfect and eternal plan of God. Prepare to close. I want you to hear how the Bible ends. The Bible ends this way in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 and following. The text says, The Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, or the church, the Holy Spirit and the church Say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift. Take the free gift of the water of life. Take the gift of God's salvation. Take eternity. Take eternal satisfaction and provision that's offered to you. Our maker, our sustainer, our redeemer and friend. And he who testifies to these things. That is Jesus himself says, yes, I am coming soon. John, the human author of that book, says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. See, friend, He is coming soon. His grace is with all those who know Him, all those who trust Him, all those who follow Him. 
with those who are his people, receive his redeeming grace today. So what does that mean? It means, first of all, if you, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not trusted in him for salvation, if you've not turned away from sin and self and embraced life through Jesus Christ, then do so today. Unbeliever, cry out to God for salvation. Trust the provision of the Savior. Repent and acknowledge that you have fallen short, that we've all fallen short. Fallen short of the perfect standard of a holy and righteous and just God. And yet even so, God has been merciful to you. He's been merciful to me. He's offered forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Repent and trust in Him. Express faith in Him. Belief in Him. And desire to follow after Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, then repent today. Don't let another day pass without knowing that you are forgiven, that you are free from the bondage of sin, that you have received God's redeeming grace. But certainly others, perhaps you have repented and received God's saving grace. For you, for me, the text of God's word, the gospel calls us to live according to it. To walk by His grace. To be reminded of His grace. To wake up each day and ask the Lord to show us His saving grace today. That we might live according to it. That we might walk as His people. That we might serve Him today and find our strength, our identity in Him. And who He says that we are. Wherever you are. And receive God's saving grace today. And Father, we thank You for this grace. Thank You for Your grace. Lord, by very definition, grace undeserved, unearned, and yet displayed toward us, offered to us in your mercy. Father, yes, you are holy and righteous and just. You you do not tolerate sin in your presence. Lord, sin must be accounted for before you. And we are sinners. And Lord, because of your love for us, you sent a Savior. You sent your Son. You came to us, Lord, to forgive us, to do for us what we could never do, to live the life that we could never live, to pay the price that we owe, to take the penalty that we deserve, that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be purified, that we might be made right with you now and forever. Father, may we walk according to that gospel truth. May we find assurance and direction from your word. May we glorify your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.